Now, what you've just heard there is the start of, uh, I guess he's a tenor, Liam Davali singing on Poca Bulla, uh, which is the mad Billy Goat uh, for German television sometime in the 60s. Uh, obviously, they came to Ireland to record that. And on Poca Bulla is a, a song which is associated with the Puck Fair, which is what we're going to talk about today, or it's going to lead us down a road into exploring uh, wildness, embodiment of wildness and landscape in animals and and goddesses and the rights of kingship and marriage with the land. But before we get into that, and I've got to somehow try and pull that into some kind of shape, let's hear Liam finish his song. It's a fair set of pipes on Liam there. That was uh, was amazing. Now. That song is kind of a rebel song. It's basically uh, the story of some rebel uh, crossing over the mountain uh, with his pike to, to join a, a band of rebels and um, ends up kind of getting accosted by a goat and one thing leads to another and he ends up kind of mounting the goat and going for kind of a wild ride over the mountain, which then um, he ends up obviously uh, taking on some some. Uh, British soldiers and kind of humiliating them in the process. Um, now, the reason I opened with that song is is because it it is associated with the Puck Fair. Now, the Puck Fair I mentioned on on I think in Voices in the Spirit Box a few weeks back. And what I was talking about is the fair in Calorgan in County Kerry in the in the southwest of Ireland. And for those of you not familiar with the fair, essentially it's a Lunasa adjacent festival where a wild billy goat is caught in the mountainside. And the goat is brought back to the town and the queen of the puck, um, which is traditionally a schoolgirl from one of the local primary schools, uh, crowns him king puck and they're kind of married and... and paraded around the town looking down on their subjects uh, from kind of a mobile tower it would kind of remind you of like a medieval siege tower but like without their protective cladding um, and this is to the delighted uh, 
uh, rapturous crowd. And um, it basically is the start of uh, three days, um, a three day session, you know, of music and, and drinking and, and all kinds of good crack. Yeah, crack in the Irish sense, not the American sense. Now, the song you just heard at the start of it on Pucker Bullia is, um, as I said, The Mad Goat. And it's associated with the festival. Now, the festival, the history of the festival is dicey enough. And I'll get back into that now. But some people say it's the 17th century, but other people say it's a bit older. Now, there's a number of things that are interesting about this. But fundamentally, you look at it and you think, okay, so a local prepubescent girl marries a wild goat. And you should see these goats. Like, they have a remarkable set of big massive arc arching back hor- uh, backwards horns and they're big shaggy things straight off the mountain so it's it's fairly odd now to say the least and it reads a bit like the start of a folk horror screenplay you know and to be fair um it should because there's some pretty heavy pagan fertility symbolism laced through the thing but before we get into that let's look at the history of the puck fair as laid out by the organizers and when i say pagan fertility symbolism the real question is whether or not it's authentic and it's very hard to say like with all of these things um and there's lots of different views on it and we'll go through some of them now there are many legends that suggest uh, an origin for the fair many of which are, are wildly inventive there's no written record stating when the fair started the origins of the fair have thus been lost into the mists of antiquity and various commissions set up over the past 200 years have tried in vain to date them. Evidence suggests that the fair existed long before written record of everyday occurrences were kept. Now, if I could just interject, I think that's probably true because particularly at the time uh, of year where this happens because it's basically in, in the adjacent weeks of Lunasa. Now, there are, two, there are two early 17th century references that are found in relation to the fair. The first is a written reference which granted Jenkins Conway, a local landlord at the time, the right to collect a sum of money for every animal bought at the August fair. This was to suggest that the fair was something already established in the local community. The second reference is a charter from 1603 by King James I, granting legal status to the existence of, of the fair in Calorgan. Um, now, importantly, it's referred to as an August fair. So how do we get from August fair to Puck fair? Well, there are many theories on that as well. The first theory simply implies that it's linked to pre-Christian celebrations for a fruitful harvest, Lunasa. And the male goat or Puck was a pagan symbol of fertility like the pagan god Pan. Yeah, no, no shit, all right. Um, another theory centres around the widely mentioned story that associates King Puck to the English Ironside uh, leader Oliver Cromwell. Now, Cromwell is a significant historical figure and revered by many, well, English people as a, as a rebel, but not so much in Ireland where he's more, more or less considered a massive twat. Uh, massive genocidal twat at that, um, but that's a topic for another time. Now, it is related that the Roundheads, which were the troops um, 
of Cromwell that we call so because of the, the, the shape of their helmets um, were pillaging the, the, the countryside around uh, Shannara and Kilgobnet at the foot of the McGillicuddy Reeks which is the main mountain range the biggest mountain range in Ireland but the or the highest mountain range in Ireland and uh, down in Kerry and they rooted a herd of goats grazing on the upland the animals took flight uh, before the raiders and a he-goat or a puck broke away on his own and lost contact with the herd while the other goats headed for the mountain, Puck went towards Kilorgan on the banks of the Loon. Um, his arrival there in a state of semi-exhaustion alerted the inhabitants of the approaching danger and they immediately set about protecting themselves and their stock. It's said that in recognition of the service rendered by the goat, the people decided to institute a special festival in his honour. And this festival has been held ever since. That's probably the least uh, tangible I think and then another and another story uh, relates back to the time of Daniel O'Connell now Daniel O'Connell is um, known as the great liberator who liberated the, the Catholics of Ireland uh, from the penal laws which were essentially a religious apartheid um, enforced by the Protestant ascendancy and British over the native Irish Catholics uh, with a number of things like um, well basically it was designed to enforce poverty and um you know not, not be able to to practice one's religion to have it you couldn't be educated if you were catholic that's why a lot of irish colleges were set up in france and all that kind of stuff and uh, well of course catholic countries france and spain and what have you um anyway um so in 1808 he was an unknown bar, bar, he was an unknown barrister and it seemed uh, before that year the August fair held in uh, Kilorgan had been a toll fair but an act of British Parliament empowered the Viceroy or Lord Lieutenant in Dublin to make an order at his own discretion making it unlawful to levy tolls at cattle ho at cattle horse or sheep fairs tolls in Kilorgan at this time were collected by the local landlord Mr Harman uh, Blennerhassett a obviously Irish name, who had fallen into bad graces with the authorities at Dublin Castle and as a result the Viceroy robbed him of his rights to levy tolls. Blenner Hasslet enlisted the services of the young Daniel O'Connell, who, in an effort to reverse the decision, decided that the goats were not covered by the document and that the landlord would be legally entitled to hold a goat fair and levy his tolls as usual. Thus the fair was promptly advertised as taking place on August 10th, 1808. And on that day, a goat was hoisted onto a stage to show all attending that the fair was indeed a goat fair. Thus, Blennerhassett collected his toll money and Calorgan gained a king. Whatever its origins, the fair had long been and continues to be a main social, economic and cultural event in the Calorgan calendar. Now, it shouldn't surprise you, dear listeners, that I support the first theory that it is linked to a pre-Christian celebration of for a fruitful harvest, and that the male goat or puck was a symbol of fertility, like, as the aforementioned pagan god Pan. Now, in this case, I think it's highly unlikely that it would be Pan, but potentially something like Soronos or an equivalent. Um, but Ireland really wasn't... Ireland was always focused on kind of goddesses. It's always been a bit of a goddess worship culture. Um, now people more learned than I might be able to kind of refute that and, and add some clarity on that but um, from my knowledge and uh, certainly seeing the cult of Mary in the modern day it's always been slightly you know it's always been a goddess worshipping country really 
So the symbolic marriage here is a pact between the local community and the embodied wildness of the divine landscape in the form of the goat or puck. So let's park the question of whether the puck fair can be traced back to pagan days. This is unsurprisingly very hard to pin down and prove. Academics vary for, as we've already gone through a couple of hundred years, um, back to the 16th century or indeed back to Norman times. Um, and there's not much value, I think, in attempting to date it. I mean, we won't because, you know, it would be already... Uh, would have already been explored very well in, in that area. As I said, there's a, a number of commissions that tried to do this. And I also don't think there is a huge amount of value in trying to create this idea of a direct line back into a misty pagan past. It just doesn't work that way, you know. And it's a folly to try and do it. Now, I'm also sure that some of you will have taken note of the word puck and you will have suspected the fingerprints of the good people and i don't blame you the etymology of puck is uncertain the modern english word is attested already in old english as puka with the diminutive form pukel and similar words are tested in old norse puki with related forms in old swedish icelandic frisian but also in celtic languages welsh puka Cornish puka and Irish puka. Most commentators think that the word is borrowed from one of these neighbouring Northwestern languages into the, all the others, which makes sense. Uh, it's not certain as to which way the borrowing went, but all vectors have been proposed by various scholars. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary favoured a Scandinavian origin, while the scholarly study of Erin Sebo Flinders University argues for an Irish origin on the basis that the word is widely distributed in Irish place names where puck place names in England are rare and late in areas showing Old Norse influence and rather to radiate outwards from the southwest of England, which she argues had an Irish influence in the early medieval period. The term pixie is in origin a diminutive of puck. So you can see where I'm going with this. Now, puck may also be called Robin Goodfellow or Hobgoblin in which Hob may substitute uh, for Rob or Robin. The name Robin is Middle English in origin, deriving from the Old French Robin, the pet form for the name Robert. Similarly, uh, the use of the good folk in describing fairies, it reflected a degree of wishful, wishful thinking and attempt to please the fairies, recognising their fondness for flattery despite their mischievous and frankly dangerous nature. Now, while that's very, very tempting to go down that road, it, it's okay. Before I go down that, before I ruin the party, let's go down the um, the Gaelic definitions. Um, puka. So the puka is Irish for spiritual ghost, uh, pluralist puki. Uh, puka is similarly a creature of Celtic folklore, considered to be bringers of both good and bad fortune. They could help or hinder rural and marine communities. Uh, they can have dark or white fur or hair. The creatures were said to be shape changers uh, who could um, take the appearance of horses, goats, cats, dogs and hares. They may also take a human form, which includes various animal features such as ears or a tail. Now, so do we have a serious red flag here for the presence of the fairy faith in the Celtic peoples? Well, I'd say we have an amber flag at best and here's why because however appealing or exciting um the above definition is it's a dead end as puck in the puck fair owes its name to the anglicization of enyok on fuck i know it's a hilarious pronunciation try and contain yourselves and that's fair of the he goat 
Puck um, being the Irish for a male goat, which is the song where you heard on Fuck Um at the start of the show. So personally, I think there is a spirit connection, um, but it is lost in that misty, <laughs> misty deep past um, where the meaning, the true meaning is undoubtedly lost. Um, and personally, I think this idea of elevating a wild goat and, and parading around as, as a king and queen with, with a local girl, a maiden, um, it, to me, that's an archetype playing itself out. You know, it, it is the idea of, you know, human life and animal life in its form of wildness and a recognition of that interwoven relationship, particularly in areas like, in Kerry is the western periphery of Ireland and all along the west coast. It's, you know, people are hanging on, people wear, it's obviously a different time now, but like, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, people were hanging on by fingernails in existence there. You know, it was a very, very difficult place to survive. It was a harsh, harsh landscape, particularly in the west of Ireland. Southwest is, I think, a little bit more... Um, a little bit more easy, soft, I would say, soft people. Uh, anyway, obviously, I'm going to try and refrain from getting my grudge between the uh, Kerry and Mayo football teams leak into this show. Um, anyway, let's back, get back on track. So I do think there is a spirit connection there, but I think it's one that's playing itself out. It, it, it doesn't necessarily have a golden thread of of belief of conscious practice through it now as i said that we go back to the fairs originally stemming from pre-christian ireland from the celtic festival of lunasa uh, which is uh, a gaelic festival rather, which is symbol symbolized as being the beginning of the harvest season and that the goat is a pagan fertility symbol now Obviously, this didn't go unnoticed, and in 1931, Margaret Murray tied the Puck Fair into her version of the witch cult hypothesis, uh, asserting that it was a pre-Christian festival in honour of the Horned God. Now, in let's, let's have a, a little chat about Murray. So, she's a bit, a bit of a divisive character. She's definitely got a bit of a kicking by the academics um, on, on her work. I think a lot of that was tied up in... Um, frankly, misogyny. Um, but she did have a pretty, you know, she definitely pushed the boundary in her, in, in her ideas and thinking. So published in 1921, The Witch Cult in Western Europe, uh, Murray stated that she had restricted her research to Great Britain, although made some recourse to sources from France, Flanders and New England. And she drew a division in in this, this idea of like, um, in this witch cult. She drew a division between the, what she called operative witchcraft, which referred to the performance of charms, spells with any purpose, and ritual witchcraft, by which she meant this ancient religion of Western Europe, a fertility-based fate that she also termed the Dianic cult. She claimed that the cult had very probably once been devoted to the worship of both a male deity and a mother goddess, but at that but that at the time when the cult was recorded, the male deity appears to have superseded um, that of the female. In her argument, Murray claimed that the figure referred to as the devil in the trial accounts was the witch's god, 
manifest an incarnate to whom the witches offered their prayers. She claimed uh, that at the witches' meetings, the god would be personified, usually by a man, at times by a woman or an animal. Uh, when a human personified this entity, Morty claimed that they were usually dressed plainly, though they appeared in full costume for the witches' sabbats. Members joined the cult as children or adults through what Mary called admission ceremonies. Murray asserted that applicants had to agree to join of their own free will and agree to devote themselves to the service of their deity. Uh, she also claimed that in some cases these individuals had to sign a covenant or were baptized into the faith. At the same time, she claimed the religion was largely passed down through hereditary lines. Murray described the religion as being divided into covens containing 13 members, led by a coven officer who was awful termed the devil in the trial accounts, but who was accountable to a Grand Master. According to Murray, the records of the covens were kept in a secret book, uh, with the coven also disciplining its members to the extent of executing those deemed traitors. Describing the witch cult as a joyous religion, she claimed that two primary festivals uh, were celebrated, one on May Eve and one on November Eve, although the other dates of religious observation were the 1st of May, or 1st of February, pardon me, and the 1st of August, the winter and summer solstice and Easter. She asserted that the general meeting of all members in the religion were known as Sabbaths, while more private ritual meetings were known as Espits. The Espits, Murray, uh, Murray claimed, were nocturnal rites that began at midnight and were primarily for business, whereas the Sabbath was purely religious. At the former, magical rites were performed for both uh, malevolent and benevolent ends. She also asserted that the Sabbath ceremonies involved the witches paying homage to the deity, renewing their vows of fidelity and obedience to him and providing him with accounts of all the magic actions that they had conducted since the previous Sabbath. Since this business had been concluded, admissions to the cult or marriages were conducted. Uh, once this business had been concluded, rather, and ceremonies and fertility rites took place, then the Sabbath ended with feasting and dancing. Murray followed this book with The God of the Witches, published by the popular press Samson Lowe in 1931. Very similar in content, and unlike the previous volume, this was aimed at a mass market audience, and the tone of the book differed strongly from its predecessor, containing emotionally inflated language and coloured with religious phraseology, repeating referring to the witch cult as the old religion. In this book, she also cut out or toned down many of the claims she had made in the previous volume, which would have painted the cult in a bad light, such as those which discussed sex and the sacrifice of animals and children. In this book, she began to refer to the witch's deity as the horned god and asserted it was this entity who had been worshipped in Europe since the Paleolithic. Within continental Europe, she claimed the horned god was represented by Pan in Greece, Soronos in Gaul and various Scandinavian rock carvings. Keep those rock carvings in your mind because we're going to come back to, to them on a slightly different angle. Claiming that this divinity had been declared the devil by Christian authorities, she nevertheless asserted that his worship was testified in officially Christian societies right through the modern period, citing folkloric practices such as the Dorset Usur, which is a mad kind of giant wooden head. <laughs> it's the most mad looking thing. I'll leave the, uh, I, I should leave the link in the show notes for that. Um, which kind of chased people around, uh, shaming them, essentially. And, of course, the Puck Fair uh, as evidence for his veneration. Now, while Murray quite understandably asserts pagan worship of the Horn God uh, via the Puck Fair, I struggle with this because the area, again, is mainly associated with goddess worship. 
in particular the sun goddess Anya and her sister Grania as monsters um, in the province in which County Kerry is located as monsters primary chief uh, pre-Christian deities. Now, uh, Michael Dames, in his book, uh, a beautiful, beautiful book, Mythic Ireland, um, t- discussed Anya further. And he said that Anya is also known as An, Anna, Anu, Dana, or, da- or Danu, the, the mother goddess in Cormac's glossary, a matter Dorum Hibernicium, adding that it was well she nursed the dios, i.e. the gods. So this is the, the mother goddess of the Irish pantheon. Now, since myth is a primarily verbal affair, Anya's proper name uh, was also an Irish word, Anya, and Anya, the goddess, lives on as Ain, the word, which means delight, joy, pleasure, agility, expedition, swiftness, play, sport, amusement, music, harmony, melody, periessence, truth, veracity, brightness, glow, radiance, shine, uh, splendor, um, brilliance, wit, and drinking up. Uh, and you'll see it's a girl's name, obviously, but the, it also means sh- like a bright one or shining one. Um, it's a beautiful name. Now this is, I'm going to uh, read uh, from uh, Michael Dame's book here now. Um, in, in, in sections. Um, now the, the name of a deity is the godhead's first expression and last resort and often tells what the deity does and is in the Irish language and related words are like sunbeams now largely separated from the divine solar source yet they still shower down through a space rapidly turning neutral to animate monster life. Now this is the bit that I, I quite like because he's tying the, the sun goddess to the land there. Now this is where we start to really see how the goddess manifests in the land. Um, now, as I mentioned for the, sim- the symbolic marriage of the Puck Fair, uh, the goat embodies the wilderness uh, of the divine landscape. But as the king in this arrangement, did the marriage represent the overlordship uh, or kingship of nature slash wildness over the town slash civility? So... This is the thing about these marriages that it, it represents one above the other through the idea of husbandry um, and this tension between the wildness and and the tame, and the tame being the place where humanity lives, right? So, or was it in this case more of a bargain? And I'm leaning towards the latter as there's no sacrifice involved. But again, there is a problem, and maybe some folklorists or historians can shed some light on this for me, but there is frankly (laughs) blunt embodiments of the goddess in the landscape, not more than 20 kilometres up the road in Killarney. That's 12 miles or so for our American listeners. Yes, Killarney is in the shadow of the Paps of Anu. Um, or Da Clich Anon. Um, this is the breasts of Anu. There are a pair of quite remarkable breast-shaped mountains. And on the summit of each uh, is a prehistoric cairn or a passage grave, which has been described as the stone nipples of the goddess. Now, I am will link leave links in the show notes to this. Um, and if I do a video version, I'll, I'll pop them in, but I won't be doing a video version just yet. Um, now, a line of stones known as the... 
Nafikla connects the two tops and is believed to be in a processional route. Um, Archaeologist Frank Coyne uh, suggested that the mountains were seen as a sacred and uh, were seen as sacred and said there's little doubt the mountain tops of both the Paps were utilized for ritual in prehistory. To the ancients, the mountains reinforced the idea that the earth was a motherly body. Most breast-shaped hills are connected with local ancestral veneration of the breast as a symbol of fertility and well-being. Now, let's head north and to the west, to County Mayo, to the site of Ireland's most famous holy mountain, Crow Patrick, or as it's locally known, uh, the Reek. Now, every year at Lunasa, people came to witness the mother goddess Sonia give birth. This is Michael Dame's work again now. So, up until the mid-19th century, only women were permitted to climb the steep 250-metre-high scree slope, which led up to the summit of the mountaintop. The Reverend James Page reported, None but those that are barren go there, and the abominable practices to that are committed there ought to make human nature in its most degraded state blush. As Philip Dixon confided, these included sleeping on Lunasa Eve in the summit bed of the goddess. In this way, barren wives empathised with and eventually hoped to participate the birth process. A strong belief persists in the locality that the Friday of Crom Dove, the harvest god in July, is the correct day for performing the pilgrimage. And many people living in the, in the around the mountain go up on that day. And that remains true today. Obviously, this has been cancelled because of COVID, but... Um, yeah, every year thousands of people make that pilgrimage up Crowpatrick. Now, folklore um, describes the struggle between the attempts of St. Patrick to overthrow both the harvest god and the ancient mother goddess of the Reek, uh, which has now been converted into the holiest mountain in Christian Ireland. Um, on the first Sunday in August, 60,000 people annually climb uh, the peak in honour of the saint. However, in the Irish manner, they often come in a mood of double coding. Rather um, than the climb where prayers are said is known as the, the, the bed of Benin um, to celebrate local Christian victory. For example, the first carn of the climb where the prayers are said is known of the bed of my Benin. Lochmo Benin, um, the boy of Patrick, and underlying that title, the newborn infant of the ancient goddess cries out for recognition. St. Patrick's struggle against the goddess of the mountain uh, reached a climax when she confronted him as a great bird, a Korra, and at 252 monster serpents, alias feet, uh, monster serpent, alias the devil's mother. He allegedly drove her from the mountain. She escaped to Loch Derg in County Donegal, uh, where the saint encountered her again at his Purgatory Lake. Now, this is where we <laughs> this gets a bit interesting because Crowpatrick now is a, is a Christian site. Um, Post-famine Christianity in Ireland got extremely conservative as a reaction to the devastation of that genocide. Um, but here's a... <laughs> A paraphrasing of, of uh, an account in 1840 by Thackeray. Yet as Thackeray discovered in 1840, her spirit lived on at Crowpatrick. After the business of the mountain came the dancing and lovemaking at his foot. Fifty tents were set out around a plain in the most brilliant green grass where they sold great coarse damp looking bannocks of bread, a collection of pig's feet, huge biscuits and doubtful looking ginger beer. There were also cauldrons containing water for tea, with other pots uh, full of pale legs of mutton. 
The road home was pleasant. Everybody was wet through, but everybody was happy. I bet they were. Yeah. Nothing like a couple of pig's feet after uh, making love to uh, perfect one's evening. Um, pig's feet are, are known as, I think, believe gubbins, I think is the Irish word for them. And I remember uh, asking a butcher how you cook them after seeing them in a, in a butcher's window in Dublin when I was in uni. And... Um, <laughs> It's a basic recipe. You boil them until the nails fall off. <laughs> I can't remember if I actually went through with it, um, but there you go. Now we're going to go back to Anya now, um, because this next myth around the conception of uh, her, she had a mysterious uh, half-human son called Karo Jarla, um, who haunts... Uh, Loch Gur, which is a, a lake near Limerick, which Anya is associated with. Now, this is an important story because it, it kind of gives an inversion of what's going on in the Puck Fair. Um, but the meaning is important, and, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll come to that again um, with a historic reference, which is a direct analogue of this. Now, according to local belief, it was in the Camogue River bank uh, that Anya conceived the mysterious uh, Garojarla, the male phantom who haunts nearby Loch Gur. The violent meeting in the early 13th century of the first Norman lord of the area, the Earl of Desmond, with the regional deity, in Irish myth, overlordship or kingship depended on the male claimant making love to the territorial goddess. By that means, he won his legitimacy. As described in Fitzgerald's transcription of folktales current in the district, the first Earl of Desmond led very much the life of a libertine, and walking one morning along the river's edge he saw a beautiful woman seated by the water, combing out her long hair after bathing. It's a standard description of um, a water fairy. Um, her cloak lay behind her on the grass. The Earl advanced noiselessly on her from behind, knowing that if he had but the possession of the cloak, he would have her in his power, and he seized it before she was aware of his approach. The beautiful woman was Anya Monclar herself, and she told the Earl if he, that he could never have his will with her had he not seized her cloak. She told him further that she would bear him a son, Garoj, whom he was to bring up with all possible care like any other gentleman. One caution, however, she gave her love. He was not to show surprise at anything, however strange his son would do. When the usual time of nature was accomplished, Anya brought the infant to the Earl, and the father's pride in him was great. The, the boy grew up from year to year to manhood and excelled in the accomplishments of his age and rank. But one memorable evening it happened that there was a gathering of great ladies and gentlemen at the castle of the Earl of Desmond, which stands in Nokani village. There was dancing, and of all the ladies, none could vie with a certain one among the guests. The grace and endurance of this young woman were however beaten, everyone said, by the young Earl Gerald himself. When the dance was ended, this lady engaged him in another contest. For all were seated at the supper table, she suddenly arose and at one leap cleared guests' table, dishes and all, then leaped back again. The old Earl of Desmond turned to his son and said, Can you do anything like that? No, said Garage. Well, stand up and try. Don't let yourself be beaten by a woman. Thus commanded, 
Arlo rose to his feet, and making a spring from where he stood, leaped right into a bottle, then leaped out again. There was great admiration in this feat, and, <laughs> and with the rest of the Earl of Desmond, they looked on in great astonishment at his son, saying he never thought he had such power. Were you not warned, said the young Earl, never to show wonder at anything I might do? By this public show of amazement, the old Earl had unintentionally cast his son out of the normal world, for once people had identified Earl's feats of as otherworldly, patterned on those of the goddess his mother, he became classified as a demigod and could no longer sit wholly comfortably in the mundane, but was now bound to follow her into the supernatural. Now you have forced me to leave you, were his last words to his father. And Earl's jump takes us into the supernatural realm. And that takes us back to Locker. Now, and we're going to talk about Finn McCool and Finn McCool's uh, time uh, at Locker and um, his involvement with Anya. So Finn's name means bright and he was bound to chase the sun goddess, goddesses Anya and Grania in their southward career, especially since Dermot, one of his men, had eloped with Grania. Indeed, Finn camped at the summit of Nokrenya. As the name Shefin, the seat of Finn, makes clear, uh, from Lochgrania, he travelled a few miles to Lochgur and arrived uh, for the Onyok at the start of the harvest. The Onyok was, was a type of race. Uh, the 12th century uh, Donyara Finn set, states, At the hill of Dune, the rock above Lochgur, the horses of the Fianna came to race at the Onyok, the great festival with the Munstermen. Cormac derived the word Onyok, Religious festival from Onyok, delightfulness of horses. And you can, that, that's spelled as in with Anya's name as the root of that word. And in uh, 1911, Canon Lynch was told by a man that the Loch Gur race course was on Loch Fennel, the hill bordering the north side of the loch. Others recalled how people came from all quarters to games and amusements there. For what Lynch deduced was the first fruits ceremony of the start of the harvest, again, taking us to... Lunasa. Now, as with the Ulster horse racing in Waka, uh, the event is inseparable from the divine birth. Loch Gurr is probably Anya's birth lake, hence it was known locally as the Hatching Lake. What she gave birth to, at least from Finn's perspective, was a horse, a certain black mare, which belonged to his Druid Dill, a uh, son of two raids, who won the three chef, chief prizes of Loch Gurr, uh, Onyok, or Assembly. Um, and it presented to and he present and it was presented to Finn by Fiaku, the local um, potent who obtained it from Dill, his druid grandfather. So, what we have here is, is this kind of um, this this mare, a horse goddess born from a, a lock, is the perfect gift from Finn. She has acquired extra value through being presented via Fiaku and Dill. At the locker, uh, the black horse passes from Dill, the priest, to Fiaku, the farmer, and thence to Finn, the warrior. And this uh, transaction, which according to uh, Dumazel, might be expected uh, of any Indo-European community from the Bay of Bengal to County Clare, as it ritually united the three chief subdivisions of Indo-European society. The divine horse, accordingly, carry the secrets of social cohesion. Now, what I've just kind of uh, I've narrated there really is is Michael Dame's work uh, in the, the the book Mythic Ireland, and I again I just 
honestly, if you if you if you enjoy this podcast, particularly the folkloric side of it, I highly recommend that book. It is it's exceptional. Now we've got a, a, quite a uh, racy bit to go through here. Now we're going to discuss uh, Geraldus of Wales. Now he's not quite the Oliver Cromwell level of prick, but he's a prick nonetheless. Um, uh, an Irish hating prick, I would say. Now, Gerald of Wales, as he is also known, uh, wrote the Topography of Ireland. And it was, or Topographia Hibernetica, um, was a major source of our knowledge for Romanesque Ireland, and it was composed for an alien and pretty much hostile audience uh, by a complex man who was noted as one of the earliest Western travellers and possibly the first author to illustrate his own text. Um, the book was composed in uh, between 1186 and 1188 after his travels in Ireland in 1183 with Prince John in 1184 and with Prince John in 1185. Now, one of the more notable things in this is he accuses... Um, well, he claims the Irish were addicted to bestiality and recounts numerous examples of men and women mating with beasts. And there's a couple of actual illustrations, um, and you'll see them in some of the links to the show notes, um, which I believe he illustrated himself. Um, quite fanciful. Um, but one of the more famous elements is he claimed that ancient pagan kings became kings in a ceremony that involved meeting with a mare in front of their people, then butchering it and bathing in a soup of its body that the king's people drank. Now, the account is um, in chapter 25 and it's called Of New and Monstrous Way of Inaugurating Their Kings. There are some things which shame would prevent my relating unless the course of my subject required it. For a filthy story seems to reflect a stain upon the author, although it may display his skill. But the severity of history does not allow us either to sacrifice truth or affect modesty. And what is shameful in itself may be related by pure lips in decent words. There is then in the northern and most remote part of Ulster, namely uh, Kennel Cunnel, a nation which practices a most barbarous, barbarous and abominable right in creating their king. The whole people of that country being gathered in one place, a white mare is led into the midst of them, and he is to be inaugurated, not as a prince, but as a brute, not as a king, but as an outlaw, comes before the people on all fours, confessing himself a beast with no less impotence than impotence. The mare being immediately killed is cut into pieces and boiled and a bath is prepared for him from the broth. Sitting in this he eats of the flesh which is brought to him and the people standing around and partaking of it. He is also required to drink from the broth from which he is bathed, not drawing it in any vessel or even in his hand but lapping it with his mouth. These unrighteous rites being duly accomplished, his royal authority and dominion are ratified. Like I said, pretty racy. Um, so there you have it. That's how kingship was conferred um, in in on record. Uh, now, what does this relate to the puck fair? Well, I think again, obviously, this is a far more barbaric and and uh, explicit right than than uh, the fairly pedestrian affair of the puck uh, affair, but. The sentiment is talking about uh, 
that communion, the copulation, the joining, and then there is the consumption of of nature, of wildness, and mastery over it through these acts. It's pretty barbaric. It's not gonna not gonna lie, but but all these things are connected um, in terms of what they represent. There's no golden thread between them, in my opinion. But what is interesting is there are rock art. Um, there's there's rock art across uh, Europe, in Italy and in in Norway, depicting pretty much the same things: um, human beings copulating with with horses and um, and stags. You know, in acts of, of bestiality. Let's not beat around the bush. Um, what was the meaning of those pieces of rock arts that were those pieces of rock art? Did they represent um, a similar um, right of kingship, a barbaric right of kingship? I don't know, but it does tell us that there is enough of a history that it was documented in the form of rock art. Now, there's some wild and crazy arcs there for you to digest i hope that wasn't too unpalatable um but i hope you enjoyed that and um yeah i'm gonna wrap it up there thanks for listening and take care bye